This is the We Are Her podcast for survivors of abuse or assault to share their stories. I'm your host, Emily Kemp, and I'll be having a conversation with a different survivor each week. I want to be sure to include a strong trigger warning with this podcast. The content we discuss includes topics related to violence. Listener discretion is advised. here who um, I will let introduce themselves, so go for it. Um, I'm Danielle Lycom. I'm a nurse in Rochester, Minnesota. Um, yeah, and I'm a survivor and advocate for um, sexual assault. Um, sorry, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> no, that's okay. Yeah, I just usually like to give our listeners a little glimpse at who they're talking to sure. before we kind of dive into things, but that's perfect. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so what I usually do to get the podcast going is just kind of turn the floor over to the guest. And so Danielle, I'll have you start sharing your story, however makes the most sense to you. And you can just jump in with, with however and on whatever timeline or whatever feels safest for you. Okay. Um, so I, I guess I'll start with the day before I was assaulted. Um, so I call it my day of innocence, really. It was November 17th of 2018, and I just remember spending the entire day with my son. We went to a movie. We bought Christmas lights at ShopCo. Um, we decorated our Christmas tree. Um, you know, we went and got ice cream together. And at night, I tucked him into bed. We did our normal bedtime routine. Um, and then after I tucked him in, I made sure the doors were locked. You know, the um, lights were off in the garage, things like that. I checked the patio door, I checked the front door. Um, everything was locked. Um, so I had one glass of wine, watched some Netflix, scrolled through Facebook, Instagram, things like that. And I went to bed um, probably in the nine o'clock hour. And there's another survivor in Minnesota here, and her line really resonated with me. She said, I was so happy while somebody was waiting to hurt me. And that's exactly how I feel now looking back at that day. I had such an amazing day with my son and it ended so great. And I was so happy sitting on my couch next to my Christmas tree and somebody was waiting for me to go to bed to hurt me. So I went to bed and I woke up to a noise at the end of my bed. Um, I grabbed my cell phone and I noticed it was 127 in the morning. Um, so I was scrolling through Facebook and then I realized the time and I was like, okay, I better go back to bed. So I put my phone down and I heard a noise at the end of my bed again. So I grabbed my phone, I clicked the side button so my phone screen would light up and I sat up and kind of shined it at the end of my bed. And that's when a man stood up at the end of my bed and he had a gun pointed at my head. I noticed he had a mask on. He was wearing all dark clothes. He had gloves on. And he said, don't move, don't move, don't move and you'll be fine. So he um, told me to lay down, roll over. And it just felt like, you know, in the blink of an eye, I was on my stomach with my hands zip tied behind my back um, on my bed. And he just stood there for a minute and I didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. I just felt like he was looking down at me like success, you know, like he got what he wanted. Um, he's in 100% control now. So, um, you know, he, he was standing by the side of my bed for a while and um, he grabbed my water cup by my, by my bed on my nightstand. And he said, what's in this? And I said, water. And he said, I need to give you something so I can get out of here. So I assumed he wanted to give me drugs. And um, so I said, no, I can't take drugs. I need to be able to take care of my son. And 
at that moment, I was so mad at myself because I didn't know if he already knew I had my son in the house. And if he didn't know, now he did. So um, thankfully, he didn't end up drugging me. I didn't take anything. Um, But while he was standing at the side of my bed, he said, I've been waiting for years to be in this position. And that cued me in the fact that he knew me and I probably knew him. Um, But his voice was disguised and it was disguised so well. It was like he had something that was disguising his voice. And at one point he thought that I recognized his voice. So he got really mad and anxious. He's like, you know who I am, don't you? You know who I am. And I said, no, sir, no, I don't know who you are. So, you know, I told him to just take anything in my house that you want, take my TV, take my money, take whatever you want. You can have everything. And um, he said, no, you work hard for your money. You keep it. Okay, well, if you're in my house, you came ready with zip ties, you came ready with a gun, and you don't want my things. Obviously, I know what he wants, right? So at this point, I was sweating, shaking, you know, crying, nervous. And he was being, oddly enough, quiet enough that he didn't wake up my son. I didn't wake up my son. Um, You know, and I got to the point that um, he just came closer to me. He kind of crawled over the top of me. And then I was laying on my back at this point, and my hands were so tight, zip tied together, that it was cutting off the circulation and it really hurt my wrists. So I was kind of moving them around while he was on top of me. And he kind of like noticed that I was uncomfortable. So he put his hand behind my back and, you know, was feeling my wrists. Then he actually went and got scissors and cut off the zip ties, which, you know, you'd think it'd make me feel better, but it actually made me feel more vulnerable because then he knew I was a liability. So, um, so he was on top of me, my zip ties were cut off and, um, he put his hand on my bare leg and he said, what if this is what I want? Because I had offered him, you know, take all my things, take whatever you want. And he put his hand on my leg and said, what if this is what I want? So what ended up happening is, um, he started kissing the side. He kissed my neck, both sides. He kissed my lips. Um, He pulled up his mask a little bit to kiss my lips. And um, I just said, please just take anything. I'll do anything to save my son. Just please, just whatever. And he said, prove it to when I said, I'll do anything to save my son. So I was then coerced and raped. Yeah, I'm not going to call it sex because it wasn't sex. It was rape. Right. Yes. So... You know, after a bit, he said, do you want me to stop? Yes, of course. So surprisingly, he stopped. Um, You know, but then a minute later, he was raping me again, just in a different position. Um, But the second time he raped me, um, I disassociated. I realized that, you know, it was like I was, I wasn't where, I wasn't being raped. Because I just kind of disconnected from everything that was physically happening to me. And I mentally just needed to like focus on like him. So I looked at his sweater. I noticed there was an Under Armour logo. I noticed that um, his hands were white. So he was Caucasian. Um, I just noticed everything about him that I could um, because I, I knew that I wanted to be able to, you know, either know who it was or to be able to tell the police. So he, when, when he was done raping me, he squatted by the side of my bed and he said, it's any consolation, it felt so fucking good. And when he was by the side of my bed, um, I was trying to get on his level. So I was just saying, um, like, you know, I want to be able to Um, see my son grow up and I want to make snow angels with my son and things like that Um, because he just wasn't leaving you know he wasn't taking my things he wasn't leaving Um, he was just at the side of my bed and for some reason he started digging through my nightstand drawers and he found a gun clip in my drawers 
And this, that really pissed him off. So he was frantically looking under my pillow, under my mattress, under my bed for a gun. And he demanded, where's the gun? Where's the gun? So I told him it was in my closet. So he went to the closet. It was actually two guns and two clips. So now he had three guns and I had nothing. I had myself and I had to you know, stay calm enough that I wouldn't wake up my son. I couldn't fight. I couldn't scream because my son would wake up and he would come in and he would, he'd be the easiest target. So when he was at the end of my bed, he made me lay on my back so I couldn't see him. And I heard him like manipulating the guns and I thought he was loading the clip and racking it. So I became hysterical like quietly hysterical. I was like, please, no, please, no, please don't, you know, kill me. And he said, oh, I bet I'm scaring the shit out of you. Um, I'm just unloading the clip. So he was taking the bullets out. He threw everything in my laundry basket and um, they landed at the laundry, at the bottom of my laundry basket with a thud. And he said, you know, this works better if there's clothes in your laundry basket. Quit being so damn clean. So, you know, I was like, have you done this before? Like, why are you talking like this? So um, he got up and um, he was, you know, at the at the side of my bed by my door. And I said, please just don't hurt my son. Don't go in my son's room. Leave him alone. And he said, I'm a rapist, not a monster. And this whole time he was threatening me. Um, what are you going to do when I leave? What are you going to do? You, you're not going to call the cops. You're not going to tell anyone. And I said, no, I promise. I won't tell. I won't tell. And um, so he left my room. Um, he was out in my living room for the longest time. I had no idea what he was doing. Um, but he would come back and check on me to make sure I didn't move. He had taken my cell phone, so I really didn't have anything that I could have done. And um, for a long period of time, he was out in the living room. Um, At one point, I heard him come back to the door, and it was like he took his gun and dragged it along the side of my door, like metal on wood, Mm -hmm. like he was taunting me and terrorizing me. And he'd come back and say, good, because, you know, I hadn't moved. Um, So he at one point said, again, what are you going to do when I leave? And I said, I'm going to go to the bathroom and then I'm going to go in my son's room. And he said, go to the bathroom now. And I said, no, I'll wait till you leave. And he said, just go now. So I did. I went to the bathroom. I sat down. I tried to go to the bathroom. All I had on at this point was just a t-shirt. I didn't have my shorts on, nothing under, nothing underneath. And so he was watching me as I tried to go to the bathroom and I couldn't. So I told him I was pee shy and he surprisingly let me shut the door. He said, don't do anything stupid. So I shut the door, but I saw the flash, the light of the flashlight that he had shining under the door, like back and forth just to make sure I wasn't, you know, doing something suspicious. So when I opened the door, he had the flashlight pointing right at me and I looked at it, which means I looked at him and that really pissed him off. Um, because he like yelled, he said, go, you know, go, go lay down. I asked him, can I go lay down? And he said, go, go. And I later found out that he had taken a picture of me standing right there, um, that his now ex-wife found on his phone. So I went and laid down and I actually covered myself up and he ripped off the covers. He grabbed my hips. He pulled my hips up. And he violently raped me um, for the third time. Um, He had put his face between my legs, you know, things that I wouldn't even do with my ex-husband. So I was just violated. I was crying. He put his head by my head. I saw the gun by my head. I noticed it was, you know, one of those two-tone guns. It was silver and black. And he said, I'd hate to have to go to your son's school. So you're not going to tell anyone. I'd hate to have to come back here. I know how to get in your house. So I said, I won't tell. I won't tell. And just a huge majority of the night was him threatening me to not tell. So he left my room again. And then when he came back, 
um, he let me go in my son's room and lay down with him. So I did, but I was so violently shaking that my son woke up a little bit and the man came to the door and he said, don't do anything stupid. And I said, we're on the second story. What am I going to do? And so my three-year-old, he woke up and he said, I want to go to daddy's house because he thought the man's voice was his dad. And I said, no, honey, that's not daddy. That's not daddy. And so I got him to go back to sleep. And I just laid there silently crying, shaking hysterical while he was out in my living room. I had no idea what he was doing. Um, He came back and he had set a timer on my iPad. And he said, when the timer goes off, I'll be out of here. So there was music playing. It was like he didn't want me to hear what he was doing. But we also heard the shower in the bathroom sink running. And my son woke up again and said, you know, why is the shower running? And I said, there's a worker man in there. Our shower's broken. Broken. Can you? He's fixing it. And then he said, mommy, I have a tummy ache. And I said, why, honey? He said, I have to go to the bathroom. I said, honey, we can't use the bathroom. But he said, mommy, my tummy hurts really bad. So I grabbed his little garbage can that was in his bedroom. I dumped it out. And I said, honey, Santa's watching you. And Santa wants you to be a really good boy for mommy. And mommy really needs you to just go to the bathroom in your garbage can because our bathroom is broken right now. And he did. So we just kind of played in his room quietly until we heard that timer go off. And um, I had heard the man run down my steps to my garage, open up my car door, and then I didn't hear anything after that. So after a couple minutes of letting the alarm go off, I opened my bedroom door, or Wyatt's, my son's bedroom door. I grabbed the iPad, shut off the alarm, but we stayed in his room for a little while longer just to be sure I didn't hear anything out there. And when I had grabbed the iPad, I noticed it was 6.15 in the morning. So he had been there for about five hours. So um, after a while, we we were watching The Grinch on Netflix. And my three-year-old, of course, his attention span isn't very long. So we eventually went out into the kitchen. I'd put on a robe because I was only in a T-shirt. And I went... Um, I made Wyatt stay in his bedroom and I said, mommy, I'll be right back. And so I got a robe. I went to the kitchen, got a steak knife and put it in the sleeve of my robe. And by that time, of course, my son had already come out. I was so afraid that the man was still there or he had bugged my house or put in cameras or was watching us. So it was like I was putting on an act. I had to say, um, okay, honey, let's make some breakfast. It's, you know, let's get ready for the day. And so we did. And I was coming up with a plan in my head. What the hell am I going to do? I didn't want to call the cops. He obviously knows where I live. He knows who I am. He probably knows where I work. He's going to know if I tell the cops. So I had concocted this plan in my head that was, we'll call my mom and we'll talk to my mom about it and we'll figure out what what we can do without involving the police. So when I realized the grocery store in town was open, I my act changed and I said, okay, honey, we have to go to the store. We have to go to the grocery store now. So I grabbed a few things like my medicine, my phone charger. I put them in my purse knowing that I wasn't going to come back to the house. And we got in my, it was a Ford Escape. And I noticed that his footprints were just down my driveway there was a light dusting of snow and so I could see his footprints in the snow. Like it was so obvious. He wasn't even trying to like hide his footprints. Yeah. Yeah. So there they were just walking down my driveway. So we drove to the grocery store and I did have my phone back at this point, but I was afraid to use it. So we walked around the store um, and I let my son put it, whatever he wanted into the cart Um, even ice cream at, you know, 7.30 in the morning. And we ran into a lady at the store and I said, ma'am, can I use your phone? And so on her phone, I called my mom. I said, mom, load a gun, 
get dad, come to Mike's in St. Charles, meet me there. She said, no, honey, I can't do that. Do I need to call the police? And I said, no, please just do it. So she did come to the grocery store in St. Charles and she didn't bring a gun, but we met in the bathroom and I told her what happened and I became hysterical. I was like marching my feet like I was in a marching band because I was so jittery and crying. And my son, my little three-year-old boy was like, mommy, mommy. And I still had these gouges in my wrists from the zip ties. And, you know, earlier I had, you know, shown them to Wyatt. I don't know why, because I didn't know if I was having a nightmare and I just needed somebody to see what see I was seeing. Saw see it. Yeah. yeah. So um, my mom saw the gouges from the zip ties and she called 911 right away. And a police officer um, met us at the grocery store. <clears throat> and that's when I went to the emergency room and had a rape kit done. So that was kind of the uh, the extent of the story. Um, I did write a book about it um, that I'm going to be publishing. So in my book, there's a lot more detail. But I didn't know who the man was. And it ended up taking three and a half months for us to find out. So I was a nurse in Rochester and I had to go back to work. Hmm. So one of the doctors that I work with, um, he had a, a house that was just sitting empty. And so we, we called it the safe house. So he put me in, my son and I, in a safe house. Um, he bought a security system to go in the house. So the only people that knew where I lived were, you know, my close family and a couple friends and then a couple doctors that I work with. Um, prior to that, I was just staying at my mom's house and my aunt's house and, you know, hoping that he didn't, the man didn't know where my parents lived. So how we found out who it was is because um, the DNA from my rape kit um, matched with someone suddenly. And it was Zane Peterson. He had sexually assaulted a vulnerable adult um, in his hometown or near his hometown, which is three and a half hours away from me. And they collected DNA from the vulnerable adult from Zane because it was at a group home that he worked at. So the vulnerable adult said, Zane raped me or assaulted me, whatever it was. So that DNA matched with my rape kit from the emergency room. So they arrested him. And, and this was not someone you knew. You know, it was actually. Mm. Um, so Zane was in my wedding. He went to the same school that my ex-husband went to. So I had known him for about 10 years prior to this happening. Or maybe, yeah, 8 to 10 years prior to this happening. And, you know, we had been friends. And I always knew he was, you know, narcissistic and, you know, a little off, like, too smart for his own good. I always knew that he was um, very sexually active. So, um, yeah. But that's had, not always a reason to suspect that someone is capable of something like, you know, breaking into someone's home and violating them like that. You know, we never yeah. want to believe that people are capable of that. Yeah. Um, so the, the thing about my case, the court process was so long um, you know, two years. But the one thing that I had that a lot of people don't have was a plethora of evidence. So he had taken my sheets and my bedding and put it in the tub. And that's why the shower was running, because he had thrown everything in the tub. He had put carpet brush all over my entire house. And I don't know why to deter a dog from following his track. I don't know. Um, there was a glove print um, by my basement window where he broke in and obviously his um, boot prints. And there was also drone footage. They had taken drone footage of his path from the church by my house. And he walked through a field to get to my house, but there were two paths and one was a little bit more snowed over. So 
they had told me that he had broken into my house Friday night. And then also that Saturday night that I was raped. I had no idea anyone was in my house the night before, um, but he was. And so then I felt violated all over again. So two years later, long court process, COVID-19 getting in the way of some of that. Um, he ended up taking a plea deal um, of 250 months in prison, which is just under 21 years. He'll only have to serve um, two thirds of that, which is just under 14 years. And then at the time he'd already served two. So basically my son and I have 12 years until he gets out of jail and, you know, no, no, no chance for probation. Um, he'll have probation, but you know, or parole. I mean, I'm sorry, getting out early on parole. Yeah. I don't, you know, I don't really know. Yeah. But it's scary to feel like you're on like a, a countdown. Yes. And so it feels was, like a long time, but not when it, your life is on the line. That's exactly it. So my son and I are now counting down till when he gets out of jail. I don't know what it, you know, my son's going to be old enough that he'll be moving out of the house. Right now we have a confidential address. So nobody knows where I live um, except for, you know, close friends and family. But when my son moves out, is he going to need a confidential address? Like, I don't know what's going to happen. But, you know, even his friends and family believe that he did what he did. And um, they're not, they're surprised by it, but they're not surprised by it because he's always been kind of narcissistic and crazy and always got what he wanted regardless. And, you know, I told my story to the police. I was interviewed um, and then later found out that he had video recorded him raping me. So, um, even more validation right there that um, he had taken videos. So that was violating her. I felt violated all over again because I don't know how many times he probably watched those videos. If he put them on, you know, a porn website or whatever it may be. I try not to think about that kind of stuff. And was that part of how they were able to prove that it was him or was that kind of after the fact? Um, the DNA proved that it was him. But then when they arrested him, his initial statement, he said, um, I'm not denying that I was in her house. He was just saying that it was consensual. So, um, but, you know, why would you come through my basement window if it was consensual? Why would you have zip ties and I had obvious zip, zip tie marks and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So he's just making up a ton of crap. And, but I do think that that's a common excuse that um, rapists will use to try and, and then it's all about attacking your name and your credit, your credibility and your reputation to try and prove that you're just out to get them. Or I've heard that actually quite a bit from, um, from survivors who talk about their rapists or abusers saying, no, no, it was consensual as an excuse as a way to try and get out of it. Yeah. So then as victims, we feel like we need to defend ourselves and, you know, convince people that, no, that really happened. I did not consensually have sex with a masked man pointing a gun at my head. Like that's not consent. Um, I did not fight, but that's because I didn't want to wake up my son and I'm alive. My son's alive. And so obviously I did something right and just cooperating and doing what he wanted, not pissing him off. Um, but now, you know, I, I wrote a book, so that's been super therapeutic for me. Um, I have been doing some um, thrill-seeking um, therapeutic things, so not everything I've been doing has been healthy. Um, <clears throat> a lot of it is, of course, but you know, I bought a motorcycle and... I was going to say, what are you doing, jumping out of airplanes? Like... <laughs> Oh, no. You know, I want to go on a hot air balloon. I bought a motorcycle. I'd be on it all day, every day if I could. Um, and then, of course, therapy. But um, truthfully, I have two books that I'm writing. Um, and then I just wrote a children's book as well. So I hope to publish all of those this summer. Um, after Zane was sentenced to 250 months in prison, um, I met his wife or his ex-wife and it was so heartbreaking meeting her knowing what she had gone through, but it was also healing at the same time because 
um, he had been lying to her about everything. He was telling her, oh, I'm only going to get two or three years in jail, then I'll be out, you know, and it was consensual. And, you know, <clears throat> she's, she stuck by him. She was believing him. She had no reason not to believe him. So she pretended to be with him, I later found out, um, only because if he did get out of jail, you know, what was going to happen to her? So um, Zane has six kids, and now they're all without a dad. They're all without his income. So I'm in the process of starting an organization and for survivors, but also for families that were left behind. And that would be the perpetrators' families. All those, all those kids, his ex-wife, suddenly without his income. It's, it's not fair to me, but it's also not fair to her. And I don't, I don't know what resources she has, but I feel like it's not enough. So, um, And it's so stigmatizing and ostracizing to be a, a family member or friend or spouse of of someone who can commit such a heinous act, like, you know, you're, you become like a social pariah. And I think, you know, your point really shows how like, this is, there are so many people harmed, you know, there are concentric circles of harm by this one person's actions. Yeah. It was the, the, there was a dyad of assault happening that in that incident in that night, but the ripple effect is just like detrimental to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, his mugshot was in the newspaper and people were saying, oh, he has rapist eyes. And his ex-wife is like, my, my kids all have his eyes. So what is she supposed to think? How is she supposed to feel? Um, she doesn't want their life in the media. So I'm, I'll do my best to respect that. Um, but I know that my son's going to find out what happened. Um, so in, at the end of my book, I wrote a letter to him for whenever he's old enough to read it and happens to come across it. I wrote a letter to him, um, in my book, just letting him know how I feel and such. But, um, you know, that vulnerable adult that was assaulted, he had worked at a group, a group home part-time, uh, a group home of men. So it makes me wonder if he had been assaulting that man like before, cause he had been working there for years, you know, how many times has he assaulted people there? Um, but you know, I wish that he didn't get assaulted, but if that man hadn't, hadn't have gotten assaulted by Zane, then he might still be an unknown man. And I might still be living in fear and hiding, thinking that he's outside my house waiting for me, watching for me waiting to make a move to kill me because I told the police. So it's, it's, it's just hard. There's just so many people affected. He's got charges in um, Hennepin County because when they were searching his house, they found a tote with a bunch of electronics. And within those electronics were video recordings. Um, he had put a hidden camera in his ex-wife's sister's bathroom and bedroom. So he had video footage of her in her bathroom and her and her husband in their bedroom having sex. And then he's also got um, nine felonies, gun charges, because he stole a bunch of guns, I guess. But, you know, and he was, we later found out he was on meth this whole time. So having that narcissistic personality and, you know, being too smart for his own good, even though he didn't even go through 11th grade in high school, um, being on meth just pushed him over the edge to make him do bad things, I guess. Yeah. I mean, being a narcissist, I like to explain it. Like it's not, it's not the meth that like turns somebody into an abuser or a rapist, but if you already have those tendencies and you're adding drugs on top of it, it's not a good combination. You know, like you, if you're not an abuser and you use meth or like, if you're not an abuser and you get drunk, you know, you're, you're probably still not going to abuse or assault somebody, but that tendency was already there for him and it amp probably amplified it or made him feel invincible. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that can happen. Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, like I said, he said, I've been waiting years to be in this position. So he had obviously been 
It was premeditated. He had called my ex-husband earlier that year and said, so you and Danielle are officially done now, right? Because we had separated. And my ex-husband said, yeah. So I felt like he had been planning for months to come um, down and break into my house. And he had told his wife that at the time he was going on a hunting trip. And, um, you know, he he hunted me. So I guess that was one true thing that he said to his ex-wife. But another thing that she told me is um, she found out a whole bunch of women that he cheated on her with. And she said, they all look like you. They all have big brown eyes, long brown hair. And it just makes me angry. It makes me angry at the world. You know, it's, I don't know, people think it's so great, like looking a certain way or whatever. It's not like it's hard. Like I've been assaulted a lot of times and this just pushed me over the edge. Now I have this like fiery rage in my soul and I live to like make the world a better place in this regards. And that's what I'm going to do. So heck yeah. Uh, Do you mind sharing like the name of your book or the title of your book or any of that information? Yeah. So my book is called four pounds of pressure and I haven't decided on the subtitle name yet, but what four pounds of pressure is the trigger pull of a nine millimeter handgun. So um, basically I survived the lighter side of four pounds of pressure. So um, now I just feel, you know, you can hide, you can survive, or you can thrive. Um, And I think that that's a spectrum that you can be on as a survivor. And it's a roller coaster. You, you know, you hide, then you're okay. Then you're awful, then you're okay. And I'm just trying to thrive as much as I can for my son. My son obviously knows now that the worker man that was fixing our shower was actually a bad guy um, that shouldn't have been in our house. So I'm trying to be strong and brave and thrive for my son. I don't hide my feelings from him because he needs to know that it's okay to be sad and it's okay to work through things. But um, I'm, I'm just trying to stay on the bright side, you know, seize the day. (laughs) And I think at some point, you know, he'll have a lot of his own processing to do about it. And I think you, you trying to be as transparent as you can while still being like developmentally age appropriate with the information that you're giving him will, when he's, as he's getting older, like hindsight 2020, it will actually give him like more things to process in a positive way. Whereas like keeping kids in the dark about there's little sponges, they pick up on everything. And there's like, you know, not sharing is almost like a betrayal because he will find out eventually. And then if there's nothing there from the time it happened until he, until he realizes what happened and like to like piece together, if it's all blank, if he's in the dark about it all, there's nothing to like parcel through or piece together. Like that's, that's way harder, I think in the long run. Um, so yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like as a parent to try and figure out what the exact right thing to do is in that situation. But I totally, yeah, I see what you're doing and I think it's really amazing. Yeah. I mean, he had best friends next door, um, another little boy named Wyatt and a little girl. And suddenly we just couldn't go back home one day, you know, so it was really hard for him. We had to put all of our, not all of our belongings because I didn't really grab much, but we had to you know, put things in a garbage bag in a laundry basket and stay at my aunt's house. Then, you know, the next day stay at my mom's house and we had to go back and forth. And for a three-year-old, that's hard, you know. Um, He wanted to be with his friends. He wanted his own bed. Um, He wanted, you know, his own place. Like, mommy, why can't we go home? So eventually my mom and I told him that that man that was at our house shouldn't be there. So I've been very proactive with Um, working with his mental health counselor at school and just making sure that people are keeping an eye on him, making sure that he's okay at all times. And truthfully, I, you know, sent him to counseling before I sent myself to counseling. Um, I mean, that's for other reasons. I feel so guilty taking time off of work to heal myself. But one of the best things that I did actually was go to a support group. Um, Networking has been 
so amazing for me. Um, I'm on the survivor advisory group to the governor of Minnesota. So I get to be involved in, um, you know, bills that are going to be passed and things like that. And they get our opinions as survivors, um, how this might affect us and what we think about it. So I'm just so thankful to be part of something bigger than myself. It's not this one rape or, well, it was three. It's not this one incident that happened to me. It's it's the cause as a whole. Um, and, you know, all the times that I've been sexually harassed leading up to that, it's just fuel, you know, it just fueled the fire. Speaking of fire, another therapeutic thing I did was I shot my mattress with an AR poured gasoline on it and lit it on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just the tangible act. Oh, that's really, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, listeners take note. Um, but I think like there are healthy ways to, like you were saying, like release rage, you know, um, whether that's smashing things like punching pillows, you know, I think I've heard of like college campus sexual assault survivors who will like carry their mattress around campus and be like, what when the administration um there was like a pretty famous case a few years ago the administration like ignored it basically and wasn't going to do anything so she literally carried the mattress that the rape occurred on around campus so that like no one could ignore it you know um yeah so i think it's pretty badass when i hear survivors like taking things into their own hands and like doing what they need to do to like to work through it whatever that looks like that's exactly yep that's exactly it um, riding my motorcycle is therapy for me. It's, it's escapism because when I get home, you know, I have to deal with the problems still, but, um, kickboxing, that's been awesome. Burning my mattress, shooting it with a gun. All of that has been amazing. So I'd recommend to other survivors, burning your mattress feels amazing. <laughs> Yes. I, um, yeah, there's definitely stereotypes. I think about like what a survivor looks like and that they're meek or mild or timid or, you know, and it's like, no, um, first of all, survivors are all around us all the time. It's not like people wear that on their sleeve. And second of all, um, they're strong and they're badass. And third of all, they get to do what they need to do to heal. And, um, yeah. And I think, yeah, I just really appreciate you highlighting some of those things that you've done. Um, are there other things that you feel like have really helped you kind of along this this healing journey that you're on now? Uh, people. So when I went back to work, I linked up with a security person. She was the interim security supervisor at my work, and she facilitated me coming back safely, and she got me a parking spot at work. Um I have to throw a disclaimer in there that all of my, what I'm saying is not related to, you know, it's not the opinions of my job, but I work at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. And so it's a huge facility. You don't get to park on campus unless you've worked there for 25 years. So she ended up getting me a parking spot. Um, security would escort me into the building, out to my car afterwards. And having a consistent support person has been amazing. She was one of those. The court victim advocate, um, Claire, she was another person because my family um, was not consistent. Um, days after Zane was arrested, I had a falling out with my mom. I've never not gotten along with my mom, but we didn't speak to each other for over a month. Um, and then I later learned that she was a secondary victim, most likely, you know, stuck in the anger phase and was taking it out on me. So I went through Zane being arrested, selling my house when it was done being a crime scene, buying a new house, getting a confidential address, all without my mom and dad, because, you know, my dad did whatever my mom did. Um, you know, my sister, she's been my rock. She's my fire, but she was deployed in Kuwait. Um, so she's just kind of not accessible. Um, my ex-husband was you know, an awesome support person, my best friend, but then he got a girlfriend. So he stopped supporting me pretty much altogether. Um, and then I had another best friend that was kind of up and down as well. So consistency was, was really good for me. So I kind of leaned on those people quite a bit. My coworkers were amazing too. They got me, um, new sheets, a new comforter and, um, a coworker of mine, a resident that I worked with, um, Dr. Gearman, he was moving because he got a job and he um, 
had an extra mattress that he didn't want to take with. So he gave me, he gave me his bed. He gave me a new dresser because I didn't want anything for my bedroom. So, you know, having, having my coworkers and they've been, they've, they're the reason that I'm okay. It's all the, all the people that have been helping me through this. Yeah. And I think that's a really important message for people to hear because when you are a friend, family member, or loved one who has, um, who has, a, you know, someone that they care about go through something like this, it can feel like, oh my God, what do I even do? But to hear from survivors, like, I don't know, it doesn't always matter what you do, but I just need you to be there. <laughs> and I need you to be consistent because isolation will not make any of this any better. No. And I totally get why people don't want to talk about what happened to them. But if you do, you might be surprised at the support that you're going to get. So that's been really amazing. And, you know, one of the reasons I hear a lot is people don't want to talk about what happened to them because they don't want to be treated differently. I have to say that I'm quite different from that because I do want to be treated differently because I don't want to be assaulted anymore. I don't want to be raped anymore. I don't want people, now that I'm single, when I split up from my ex-husband, I was assaulted like five times in like a two and a half year span. And it was because they knew I was single, you know, and I was so nice and quiet and passive and shy. And, you know, they just took advantage of that. And now that I'm talking about it, I I want them to look at me differently that if they're going to touch me like that again, I'm probably going to punch them in the face. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But thankfully I haven't been assaulted since because I think, you know, I'm so open about it, but also I try to make myself look badass. I got a nice big old lioness tattoo in my arm. I got a big black Ford F-150 truck, black motorcycle. So I'm, I'm trying to look badass or so just like lean into fun. the badassery that is you. <laughs> just yeah, lean into it. Why not? Out there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was probably already there, but you kind of like, you know, when you face the edge of of death and and like pain the way that you have, sometimes like that other that other like strong side is just ready to come out. Yep. It's oddly freeing experiencing the worst day of your life. And I just felt free after you know, going through that, obviously it's been completely awful for so many reasons. And I still have PTSD and triggers and I'm on, you know, medication for depression, anxiety, things like that. But my life right now, I'm living it more full and more, um, I always wanted to be a writer and now I am because when you survive basically nearly dying because someone points a gun at your head, you start actually living, which is, it's, it sucked, but it feels good to yeah. live. Yeah. To be on the other side now. Mm-hmm. Yep, exactly. Um, well, I would love to ask you, and I ask everybody this question on the podcast, if you were able to say something to a survivor that's listening, like what would you want to say to them? Um, yeah, I guess a couple things, um, maybe more to perpetrators, but no is a complete sentence and that does not need to be negotiated. That is a complete sentence. Um, But to survivors, I would say um, networking has been amazing. Like I said, I know a lot of people don't want to talk about it, but you'd be surprised that when you do talk about it um, with other survivors, it makes how you're feeling normal. Um, It normalizes all the things that you're going through and you stop feeling so alone because there's somebody else that's going through the exact same thing. So it, it really helped me to be not so lonely having other people feeling the same way that I was feeling. Um, So I just want to say you can heal, take back your power. Don't let your rapist own you. You can do this. You can get over this and we can get through this together. Heck yeah. That's what we are her is all about, obviously. But, um, and I'm, we're really happy that you got plugged into us and that you're like part of our network now too. Um, yeah. because shout out to Caroline. Yeah. You <laughs> hooked me up with Stevie. So, <laughs> oh, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, someone told me once that like, when it comes to abuse and assault, that type of, that is harm that's happening between two people and, and, or like it can, it can happen with a group of people as well. But like when, when the, the harm is happening 
interpersonally, then the healing also needs to happen interpersonally. Like you can't heal from interpersonal violence by yourself. Like it often takes sort of like a corrective experience um, where you then you can like relearn that people are safe and you can feel like mutual love and respect and bonding in a healthy way with other people. And when you're with like a survivor, um, brother or sister or whomever, like there's something about people who just get it, who just get it. And you kind of speak the same language and you don't have to explain yourself um, unless you want to. But yeah, people who just get it like that in and of itself is so cathartic. Yep, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. Well, I just want to say thank you so, 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 so much for sharing your story. Um, It was really powerful and really moving. And I have a lot to think about and process. But your your bravery and your vulnerability and your badassery, I like (laughs) see your tattoo flashing on the camera. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Y'all can see it on my website. Um, I have, it's www.daniellelikem.com. And that's where I have a blog and some pictures of my lioness tattoo. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, there's this famous saying, hurt people hurt people, but healed people heal people. Yeah. So helping other people heal is very healing. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's been really great for me, too. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. And can you remind me, too, just one final plug, like when is your book coming out this summer, you said? Yeah, my tentative release date is July 12th. Okay. And that's because the appeal period for when Zane can appeal his sentence um, ends July 11th. So, <laughs> okay. Gotcha. I'm waiting till the next day to publish. Got it. Well, hello from the past, anyone who's listening. We are in May. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. We don't know exactly when Danielle's episode is going to come out. So, it may, the book may be out already or maybe it's not, but um, go look for it and I will definitely read it. Um, awesome. yeah. And thank you again for like your, yeah, you just your vulnerability and being so open. And, um, I call it like giving, giving people the gift of going second, you know, and I think you're like really mm-hmm. leading with that authentic voice of yours. And hopefully that'll help other people feel a little bit braver to use theirs too. So thank you again. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Be sure to subscribe and don't forget to check out our online community at weareher.net. If you or someone you know has experienced abuse or assault, you can always call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233.